last uh, last week, towards towards the end of the talk, or as the talk was ending, uh, we actually you you heard those of you who were here heard the the crow uh, that had something to say to us for us about the talk about silence and. Uh, I was wondering afterwards how many of us actually heard the clarity that was uh, that was present in that sound. It was the timing was incredible, but the timing is always incredible in a way. You know, there's always an opportunity to wake up to hear something as it is, to see something as it is, uh, to wake up from the dream. Even if we are dreaming that we wake up from a dream, it does have some power. And if we are dreaming, then let's make it the best dream ever or the clearest dream ever. So what is hindering us when we hear something, when we hear that crow or anything else? The clarity is there. The obscurity is in us. It's not that what is there is not clear. It's just that we bring in a lot of stuff, mist, haze, and then we end up seeing it over and over again. We talk about sustenance, what sustains your practice, and, uh, and I've been encouraging everybody to contribute, to write something about it to the Sangha, to share experiences, and, and it's wonderful to see when people actually do that. People you, you do, you do share with each other and you, and I think that it, uh, it serves as great boost to the practice. What sustains you? What keeps you in the practice? When you start to get drowsy, to get sleepy, to fall back on old habits, what snaps you out of it? So what is the sustenance? But the question is, what do we do to create more delusion, too? It's not just, you know, how do I feel what's going on or how do I see what's going on? How do I stop creating delusion? And, uh, and the Buddha recognized five hindrances, and I want to go over that. <coughs> the first one is desires. Five ways in which we sustain delusion. First one is desires. Right? To want something. To want something is to. Uh, last week I, I mentioned uh, uh, knowing how to be satisfied. Right? From the Buddha, from the Buddha's last teachings, to know how to be satisfied. Right? And desire is to practice not being satisfied. As long as we want something else we're not able to see what is here, to hear the crow, 
to see the clouds. I was driving over this morning and I was really seven and it was amazing. I mean, the, the clouds and the sky together created this powerful, powerful image. And it seemed like I was driving into the sky rather than driving up 287. It was sky and Route 287 were one. It's always there for us, as us. But again and again, we fall right back into, I want this, I do not want that. <coughs> Desires. The second is anger. Anger arises, it does. But what do we do with it? No, and it does. Anger is a, a blinder. <coughs> it blinds us. It covers for us. It hides us from us, let's say. We hide ourselves in that. So when anger arises, we have an opportunity. And the same with desire. When, des when a desire shows up, arises in front of us, arises in front of us, we have an opportunity to either feed off it or use it as food for realization, for awakening. So it's not one way. It's not just it is bad. It's neither bad nor good. It's an opportunity. Like looking at the sky, like listening to the crow. It's an opportunity to go deeper into sleep or to wake up. Everything is, is an opportunity. The third one is restlessness. This is something we, we, we encounter on the cushion, off the cushion, with other people, at work, in traffic. There's always a certain level of anxiety or restlessness that we are experiencing. So that's a given. Again, like emotion, that's a given. No need to escape it. But again and again, it always comes down to the question of how do we work with what shows up? So the clear sky is clear, but do we even see that? Or is it covered up by what we bring into the memory? Doubt. The fourth one is the doubt. We doubt. You know, it's a. We, we have moments of trust. We trust, although we don't know for sure. We don't know exactly what we trust, but there is the trust, and it carries us through the practice. You know, we can have a zazenkai or a sashin, and you feel amazingly in tune in tune with who we are. The next day, we doubt. How come? Where does it come from? One day we trust, the next day we doubt. But again, it's a given. We're going to experience that. So what do we do with it? The moment we experience the doubt, do we give it validity? Do we give it power? Do we feed it? Or do we use it to recognize yeah, there is that to do with. 
I'm not going to always feel clarity. I will feel obscurity. But that's okay. It's an opportunity to work with it, to examine and to see where can I go with that? What can I do with it? What part of me, what seeds in me do I want to nourish using that? We all have seeds. And we do have a choice in what seeds we choose to nourish. Not so much in what happens, but in using what happens to nourish specific seeds. There we have a choice. Because when it rains, it rains. When it snows, it snows. And when there's traffic, there is traffic. Congestion happens. You will get stuck. We are getting stuck. So that's happened. The last one, the fifth one, laziness. Laziness. So how to, what do we do when we feel lazy? We feel lethargic, not wanting to, that goes back <coughs> to desire. You know, I don't want to do something. I don't feel like doing something. So the question is, how do I do what's needed, even at moments that I don't feel like doing it? How do I get myself moving? Right? And that's going back to the Dharma over and over again. The Dharma is showing us, is teaching us this, this ancient tradition that we are, we're here to keep together. We're here to expose to keep alive is not about the tradition, it's about what the tradition is pointing at. Which is again what the crow was pointing at, embodying, is embodying. But do we see that? You know, when we fall back into the trap of me and what I like, me and what I don't like. We fall back to the trap of our reaction or our reactivity to what we see. For example, this cushion on the side here, that we put a cushion or two for people who are late. And we just talked about that, that this by itself it has nothing to do with what we feel about. You know, we show up and we show up late for whatever reason, fine, here we are. And there is a Zapo and Zabuton waiting on the side for those who show up late. That's all it is. It's not about, well, you show up late, now you're gonna be punished, or whatever it is that's going on in our mind in reaction to that. But can we actually see that the cushion on the side is not what we feel about the cushion on the side? Can we see that those two are not one and the same? Can we just park our butts on that cushion and go no further? Or do we sit on the cushion feeling terrible about ourselves that we, again, screwed up, messed up, 
showed up late, being punished, reprimanded, being slapped on our wrist, losing something. But whatever else is going on in our minds, and a lot is going on in our minds, but again, it's an opportunity to choose to not go with it. Case 26 from the Mumonkan. Hogan brings out an opportunity up an opportunity for us to look at. The monk once went to Master Hogan of Cereal before the midday meal to ask for instructions. Right, to ask for some teaching to receive an opportunity to go deeper. That's a good thing, right? You know, to show up. I'm here to study. I'm here to deepen. I'm here to learn something. I'm here because I know that I need to further my study. But are we open at that moment? Or are we already covering that moment with what we bring with us. So Hogan pointed to the bamboo blinds with his hand. At that moment, two monks who were there went over to the blinds and rolled them up in the same exact manner. The two attending monks were there. And they saw what he did, pointing to the blinds, got the message, got up, rolled them open. It must have been a really nice day, sunny day. It was dark inside, as it is. So they got up and they rolled them up. And Hogan said, one gained, one has gained, one has lost. One has gained, one has lost. And the Mumon commented on that saying, just tell me which one has gained and which one has lost. If you have one eye opened concerning this point, you will know that national teacher Serio failed that holding. Nevertheless, you should not inquire into this problem in connection with gain or loss. not inquire in connection with gain or loss, right? And this is how we inquire. This is how we look. We don't look from clarity. We are, we are looking into clarity, but not from clarity. So therefore, we're not seeing what Hogan is pointing at. You, you, you encounter that and you say, well, what just happened? What did he see? Right? So he did it in the exact same way. There's another koan uh, earlier in that collection where Joshi traveled from place to place and visited hermits. 
And uh, he shows up at one place, <coughs> he opens the door, and the guy was sitting there meditating. And then he asked, is, is there anybody here? And the monk just raised his hand, made a fist, straight up. And Joshua said, this bay is too shallow for a large ship to dock. And just walked away. Well, in a way, he's cold. He said, ah, you're not worthy of my presence. I'll go somewhere else. Him being the large ship. The hermitage being a shallow bay. And then he arrives at a different place, different hermitage. Opens the door, walks in. Same question, is there anybody here? This monk did the same exact thing, raised his arm with a fist, said nothing. And Joshua said, you have the sword of wisdom. And made a full bow. So there is that way of looking at this koan as well. <coughs> it's, a it's a test for us, maybe, maybe, to see how we react to being scolded or to being raised, elevated. How do we feel? Do we feel when somebody says you did a great job? How do you feel about it? does it do to you? When somebody says, you did a terrible job, you should go sit in the corner. How do you feel about that? But the words, you did a great job, have nothing to do with what you feel in reaction to the word, you did a great job. The word, you did a lousy job, are just words. But then, what do we feel? What we feel is what we bring with us. The words trigger something in us. That's true. <coughs> but is that, is that a representation of reality? Is that what is? Is that really what's going on? Again and again, we encounter what we bring. And again and again, we have an opportunity to work with what we encounter. Work with it, dissolve it, then encounter what is. Not creating heat and suffering. Not creating more delusion to cover <coughs> the delusion. But something has to change in the way we are doing what we're doing. And that's something we always go back to. How do we do the inquiry or the inquiries? This is what Einstein said. You don't solve a problem with the same mind that created it. We try to solve 
but in solving it, we actually get further entangled. And it's not surprising. When, when we're blind, it doesn't matter where we walk, we're always going to, at some point, trip and fall down, bump into something. It's the way it is. And then we can either choose to open our eyes or go somewhere else, hoping that over there, there won't be any obstacle. But we bring the obstacles with us. One has gained, one has lost. And this is good because beyond this example, we have an opportunity to not go with gain, to not go with loss, but to grow, to deepen. Beyond gain, beyond loss. Or to lose ourselves into gain or loss. Doesn't happen. You know, choosing a koan to bring up in a talk is a very interesting process. And Sometimes it, it happens from what a teacher hears or sees that needs to be brought up. And sometimes the koan finds you when you're looking for a koan and then tells you this is what needs to be heard. But in either way, either case, there is this process of what needs to be heard needs to be heard. And, and as a teacher, little by little you become more and more sensitive to that and then you, you obey it. I talk to a lot of you, some personally and some Skype, virtually. And often I hear different words, but same complications. The words are not the same, but then the traps are not so different. The trap of getting caught up in the story and then trying to clarify the story from within the story. Or maybe reorganize the details of the story so to make it appear as if I am changing something, but I'm not. There's the appearance of creating a change, but in actuality, in reality, it's just maybe painting the colors in different room, in the colors uh, in the room in different shades, maybe even the same color but adding a little hue or something. But it's not really living that storyline. And of course brings up the question, do we want to, do we really want to break free? Are we willing to venture out? Do we want to get beyond gain and loss? Do we 
trust that we can function in reality that has no gain and has no loss and has no you in it. It's a very, if you look at it, deep, it's a very scary thought, notion. After spending so many years in, in jail, prisoners who are released from jail don't know what to do with themselves. And often they will commit crimes just so they can go back to jail. <coughs> we feel lost without the structure. The structure of gain and loss. I don't know if you remember, but in the movie The Shawshank Redemption, great movie, old movie, older, uh, when Morgan Freeman, I think, was uh, was released after many years, decades, I think, of being in jail. He got a job in the supermarket, and he kept asking the supervisor, can I go to the bathroom? And then the guy at some point said, stop bothering me, just go to the bathroom wherever you want. Just, you're free, you're free to do whatever you want. Yeah, stick around, do your work, but don't ask me to go to the bathroom. We don't know how to function in freedom. We need, I really think we need, or we, or we feel as if we need to know, am I doing it correctly? Is there anybody that will verify that I'm doing it correctly? Am I gaining something? Am I losing something? Have I lost something? Am I being praised or am I being punished? Those are the rules. Those are the rules and it makes perfect sense. And when you bring that uh, and you put it together with our uh, desire to define ourselves, that makes perfect sense. We are really terrified to get beyond that. So we keep reacting. Last week, uh, St. Patrick's Day, and then the day before that, uh, one of my daughters, the one who doesn't feel so great about herself, she, uh, she's 12, she, was, she thought that she has to wear a green shirt. St. Patrick's Day, so she was looking for the right shade of green, <coughs> and she couldn't find it, and she was getting very agitated, very nervous about that, and <coughs> became quite hostile, to say the least, and uh, it, was, it was quite powerful to see that, and she wouldn't we try to offer her different colors of green, different shades of green, and nothing, nothing matched. Nothing matched what she had in her mind in regards to what, the way she wants to look the next day. And she did not want to appear wrong or different than the rules that she had. 
I mean, the rules were not in there in reality, but she had in her mind a very set idea of how she should look. And she was completely trapped in that. And a couple hours later, in that same evening, she got a phone call from our friends who said, we don't have to go green tomorrow. Then everything just collapsed. And then she came over and she apologized to me. And she said, I'm sorry I behaved this way. I don't know what just happened. But there was that. There was this realization that she was in the grief of something. But while she was in the grief of that, she was convinced that the only way out is to find the right color to wear. So instead of looking at what's going on, obviously, if I find the right color, that's going to solve the problem. But it never does. Because after Tuesday come Wednesday. And Wednesday comes with its own rules, demands. You go to work. What do they think about? What if I buy this jacket or that shirt or those socks? What if I do this and not do that? We want to be right. We don't want to be wrong. We want to be praised. We want to know that we're doing the right thing. We're so afraid of doing the wrong thing. How is that freedom? Or what kind of freedom comes from always hoping to do things correctly and never, and not wanting to mess up? Isn't that jail? It doesn't matter whether we are terrified to do the wrong thing or always feeling like we're doing the right thing. Again, both sides of that spectrum come from the same place of a need to identify with something, a need to be someone. try to cover it up and we think we're doing a great job covering it up but I just I thought about it yesterday our, our cat she has a very odd habit when she's done eating there's some food left there in her bowl she's very diligently covering it up actually she walks around the bowl in a circle and she covers it up with her paw on the wooden floor nothing on the floor. But she's convinced that she needs to make it, she, to do a really good job to cover it up. So she is covering it up. It's all automatic. <coughs> there's no much volition there. There's no thought in that. There's no decision in that. It just happens. And I think this is what we do. We automatically cover up so we don't have to deal with what we, what we don't have to deal with why we're acting the way we're acting. This is, the, this is the automatic, and this is what we have to intersect. We automatically do things. 
We run towards something and away from something. That is the automatic. But we have to stop acting this way and start acting from what is. So if there is a cushion waiting for you, if you're late, all there is is just putting your butt on it and sitting there. That's it. Nothing more, nothing less. And then you sit with the thoughts that may be saying, I'm stupid that I showed up late. So you can indulge in self-deprecation. Yeah, it's an option. Viable option. Or not. Or not feel bad about it. Nor should you feel good about yourself when you show up on time. You don't gain anything when you show up on time, and you don't lose anything if you're late. But it doesn't feel this way. That's where we drown in the sea of gain and loss. The sea of yes and no. The sea of day-to-day -day reality for us is exactly that. We go up, we go down. We go down. I feel good about myself. I feel horrible about myself. Based on what? Who is measuring it? Who is determining it? Who is saying that? Whose decision is it anyway? Is it possible to live a day, live a life, live a week or whatever without going along with feeling good about ourselves or feeling bad about ourselves. <coughs> and where does it come from? Is it on the outside or is it in the inside? Where do these thoughts come from? They're all there, right? In Buddhism, mind is everything. There's nothing that is outside of mind. Hogan is Payan. Payan lived 885 till 958. Payan in Chinese is Hogan. He's the founder of one of the five houses of Zen. Back then there were five. These days there are only two left. This school lasted for five generations only, but still very powerful, very powerful teachings came out of that. So when he was young, he went on pilgrimage. It was common to go on pilgrimage to, to try and get teachings from different masters. So he went with two other monks in search for realization or deepen their realization. And they got to uh, the, the monastery of Dijon at a time where the weather got worse. So they decided to stay there. So when they got there, Dijan looked at Hogan and asked, what is it that you're hoping to find in this search? Hogan answered, I don't know. And Dijan said, not knowing is nearest. Not knowing is nearest. Not knowing. Not knowing whether it's good or bad. Not knowing whether I have failed or I have succeeded. I have gained or I have lost. 
knowing. And then he said, not knowing is nearest. At that, Hogan had deep insight. Right? Again, a glimpse of things as they are. A glimpse of the sound of the crow. The next day, when the snow was gone, the three monks bade farewell and started to depart. These young accompanied them to the gate and asked, I've heard you say several times that the three realms are only mind and the myriad dhammas are only consciousness. Right? Everything is in the mind. Dijang then pointed to a rock lying on the ground by the gate and said, so do you say that this rock is inside or outside your mind? Hogan said, inside. Dijang said, how can a pilgrim carry such a rock, such a big rock in his mind while traveling? It's a heavy load, isn't it? Dumbfounded, Hogan couldn't answer. So he put down his luggage at Dijang's feet and asked him to clarify the truth. He decided to stay and study with Dijang. <coughs> Each day for the next month or so, Hogan spoke about the way with Dijang and demonstrated his understanding. Dijang would always say, the Buddha, the Buddha Dharma isn't like that. So he went to Dokusan, presented his understanding. And Dijang said, no, that's not the way of reality. <coughs> Finally, Hogan said, I've run out of words and ideas. I, I've emptied out. When Dijang said, if you want to talk about Buddha Dharma, everything you see embodies it. At these words, Hogan experienced great enlightenment. Everything you see embodies it. If you see it. But again and again, we show up with the baggage of I am the greatest or I am the lowest. I am the greatest. Actually, we hear it over and over in Trump's speech. Right? I am the greatest. And because I'm the greatest, I will do all this for you. I promise. I promise. I will do all this for you. Okay, that's good, because I feel like crap about myself, so maybe I'll vote for you and you can fix my life. Give me some. Everything you see embodies it. A cushion waiting for you by the side when you're late embodies it. Not more, not less. That could be a moment of realization. Or it could be a moment of entanglement. of our life, we repeatedly encounter moments of feeling great about ourselves and moments of feeling the opposite. 
and we look for something that will put this cycle to an end. But what gives rise to such feelings? Where do they come from? Instead of looking for something that will stop it, or will heal it, or will cure something in us, we have to look at where do they come from? Yes, we can probably trace it back to childhood, psychologically, here is why you feel this way about yourself, because you were told this and that about uh, by somebody. You were told that this is what you are, and you somehow decided to believe in that, and it is embedded in your psyche. Fine. Okay. But now what? Now what? Now that I understand why, is that really why? Sometimes to understand why is actually to get further entangled, I think, because to understand why is to justify and to say, well, I am this way, so because of what happened to me up to this point, and because I cannot change what happened to me up to this point, then I'm doomed to be this way for the rest of my life. I am doomed to recreate the same scene over and over again. But that is true as long as I am on the stage. But if I step down from that stage altogether, then I am not creating any scene. That's a problem because, again, this is where freedom is and, again, this is where the uncertainty lies. That's where not knowing is. To know I'm a loser is to know. To know I'm the greatest is to know. To, don't, to not know is to not know. be nobody, no one, is to be everybody, everywhere. And then we have a chance to grow, to go deeper, to further our realization, to learn a skill, to sharpen the skill, to get good at it without the entanglement of what does it mean about me? There is no me. What does it mean about who? Once a monk asked Hogan, in what way must one expose oneself to the way as to be in tune with the way? How could, be we, how could we be in accord with the way? And Hogan asked back, when have you ever exposed yourself to the way without being in tune with the way? It's a great question. When, when things have ever been not exposed, even when you cover them up, they are exposed. I look at our cat, covering it up. 
Nothing happens, but she's very huge and covering it up. It's all exposed. You, you can't put... You cannot put air <coughs> on air and expect anything to be covered. Thick clouds are as empty as light clouds. You fly right through them in the same way. Black clouds, white clouds, thick delusions, thin delusions. They're all of the same nature, which is of no nature, as we are, of no nature. No gap, no separation, no you. Just this. Just a cushion to put your butt on. All it is. The verse, I finish with the verse. It says, the blind being rolled up, bright clarity penetrates the great empty space. Maybe that's all Hogan wanted to say. Roll up the blinds. And in rolling up the blinds, there is the one gained, one lost. Right? The one has gained, one is lost. Delusions are there. There's no escaping delusions. But it doesn't mean that the bright sky is not there. Clarity is there. Yet the great empty space still does not match the principle of our sect. The great empty space still does not match the great principle of our sect. It is far better to throw away emptiness and everything completely. <coughs> Even that. And that. And with a tight fit, never let the wind pass through. Never let the wind pass through. We're exposed to it all the time, and at the same time we're exposed to it, here's the thought, here's the emotion. Here's the familiar me. Here's the thought about me. Not being the one. Not arriving yet. Not being worthy of realization. Here it is. And at the same time, clarity. At the same time, One has gained, one has lost. With that, let's deepen our practice and not expect, not expect to not encounter delusions, not expect to not encounter over and over again that which can create complications but also can create clarity. It's the same one. 
with that. With that. Let's listen to the crow over and over. 